right, welcome back to Shop Talk with the Sheriff. I'm Sheriff Gregory Tony here in Broward County, Florida. Thank you for joining us again on our podcast. For my frequent flyers, my loyal followers, you guys know the theme. We try to talk about some of the great work that we're doing here in Broward County. Um, many times we stay in house. We talk about the nature of what's going on in BSO, bringing all type of experts from the Department of Fire Rescue, preparedness and response, investigations, law enforcement. Yeah, we're a big beast, guys. You, you know it. Uh, today, I'm going to stay in house again. Uh, we have some really exciting news to kind of bring to the public once again uh, about a significant program we're doing at Fire Rescue. And today's guest is one of our division fire chiefs, is Heath Clark. I'm going to read off just a little bit about his bio to talk to you uh, to give you just kind of baseline understanding about how vital this uh, individual is and his expertise and what he's been able to accomplish here in the agency. Uh, Fire Chief Clark actually began his career back in Deerfield, uh, the old Deerfield Fire Rescue days. And when that merger took place in 2006, he, of course, lateraled over to the Broward Sheriff's Office and immediately began to impact the agency. He rose through the ranks, uh, of course, being a firefighter paramedic to the chief officer. After serving as a captain in operations, he served as an acting EMS quality manager. And he was followed, uh, that, the next follow-up was a promotion to division chief of EMS. And so he's been leading up the EMS component for the agency for quite some time now. And a lot of folks don't realize, you know, you think about fire rescue and you, you go back to the big city metropolitans and you're thinking about buildings burning down and people climbing 75 stairs. That's not the frequency of what we deal with here in Broward County. EMS is the bread and butter of fire rescue in terms of the call volume. And I'm sure Heath is going to talk about that. Uh, looking more of his credentials, Florida State certified live fire instructor, fire instructor two, BCon instructor, live A and B EMS instructor, and I can go on and on and on. And he also completed a bachelor's degree in emergency management at the University of Florida. He's not perfect. <laughs> I was hoping that was going to say Florida State, but it is what it is. So today's guest is my man, Chief. What's up? How's it going, Sheriff? I'm good, my man. I'm glad to have you on. Hey, the wife went to FSU, so. I, I know that. I know I, I know who's the, the smart one in the family. <laughs> so, uh, guys, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, Heath and I are not just colleagues and not just the, the boss. He's a friend. I've known him for quite some time and super proud of what he's been able to do in his own uh, professional career. So, look, Heath, today I want to talk about and educate the community about some of the things we're doing in fire rescue and EMS side with the whole blood program. But before I do that, I always kind of open it up. To what got you motivated, inspired to join Fire Rescue? Like, how did that start? I was looking for something that could, you know, challenge me, uh, not just physically, not just mentally. I, I initially was going to go through the law school track, and I decided I didn't want to sit behind a desk for the rest of my life. And to show you the universe has a great sense of humor, I now sit behind a desk. Um, but I, I was looking for different things. I wanted a physical job. I wanted the opportunity to, you know, think on my feet, problem solve. Uh, and the, of course, the, you know, there's a lore of, you know, doing exciting, challenging things, cutting cars apart, you know, working medical scenes, fighting fire, you know, helping people. So that, that, yeah. that all kind of came together and coalesced and it just pointed me in this direction. And so let's talk a little bit. I kind of gave you a little segue earlier when I was saying about how important EMS is for this county and, and what we do here in the fire rescue department. Give people the overview, like that overview of your personnel. What are you responsible for? Um, when it comes to EMS calls for services, how many of those are we pretty much handling in percentiles and things like that? 
Sure. So roughly, give or take, every year, uh, about 75 to 80% of what Broward Sheriff's Office Fire Rescue does is EMS. Um, last year, it was roughly 35,000 patient transports. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, out of a total of uh, roughly, I think, 65,000 total calls for the entire system. Wow. So it's somewhere around 50,000 patient contacts, because not everybody goes to the hospital, right? So um, I provide oversight and purview for uh, 750 personnel. Uh, about 99.9% of those are paramedics as well as firefighters. Mm-hmm. There's a, a few EMTs left within the system. I think there's about 20 of them or so. Um, responsible for protocol development along with Dr. Roach, uh, the liaison to 27 different receiving facilities. I represent the agency in numerous uh, professional organizations locally, attend different state meetings and national meetings nice. that represent the agency. Um, it, 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 it just kind of spirals from there. There's yeah, more. guys, look, I, I told you he was busy. Uh, he's got his hands full and, and his unit and everybody in EMS is, is really um, the bread and butter in terms of the lifeline out there for the whole community with fire rescue for sure. And one of the things that you're responsible for that we're going to dive into, uh, you also lead up the fire rescue aviation unit in terms of personnel, flight programs, everything else. Can we talk a little bit about the aviation unit on your side for a moment? Tell us about, you know, personnel. What do you have? What are we flying in, et cetera? Yeah, absolutely. So we have two EC-135 helicopters. Uh, We run a Part 135 program, which is a a significantly high-level standards uh, when it comes to safety, efficacy, overall training for the pilots and the air medical crew. Um, So the FAA dictates how we do everything that we do when it comes to accepting flights, so on and so forth. Um, So it's a pretty stringent standard to meet. Uh, I'm lucky to have a very, very good team at the hangar. I have an excellent mechanic. I've got a great DO and chief pilot. The DO is a director of operations. Mm -hmm. My air medical crew and my pilots are fantastic. So I got roughly 25 people up there that run this operation for us uh, at your best through me uh, or through the fire chief through me. So (laughs) um, we uh, have a 200 mile uh, nautical mile uh, service area. So we roughly from give or take Tampa, Orlando area, all the way down to the Keys. Wow. Um, so it's we don't go to Orlando every day, but we can if we need to. Yeah, and, and it's funny you talked about that radius uh, in terms of how far you can go. I'm going to jump out of kind of today's topic, but the great work that you guys did when the uh, our West Coast neighbors were hit by the hurricane. I knew we flew several rescue missions out there. You want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. We, we ended up running a lot of mutual aid over there and, and provide coverage. There's a good relationship amongst all the different air rescue uh, programs in South Florida, mm-hmm. uh, just the way it works out. Um, in fact, uh, Two years ago, one of our personnel received the State Paramedic Firefighter, uh, State Paramedic of the Year Award uh, from a call that we flew in Collier. So yeah. it's it's not that uncommon for us to go across or for them to help us out. You know, there's mechanical issues, there's multiple patients, there's different reasons why Metro Dade might need to come up or we might need to go to Palm Beach, et cetera. So um, there's a great great working relationship amongst all the different agencies. That's awesome. And I remember seeing all the updates, and I was just like blown away at some of the rescues you guys were doing out there, uh, considering how much damage was done on the West Coast and all the sheriffs, the local municipal police departments gave you guys much love and shout out on that. Now, another thing about aviation, which kind of drives us in today's conversation, is about what we started, this unique whole blood program uh, and its ability to help save lives, right? That's what we do collectively at the Broward Sheriff's Office. Everything is driven behind how many lives we can preserve and then the property element comes after that. Uh, I recall having a meeting going back uh, when Chief Honus was still here uh, and working with even when Fernandez was here and talking about the importance of let's launch this initiative. And you've been the guy to spear it up. So tell us about what whole blood is and how aviation is applying it. Sure. So it, it took us a long time in EMS to figure this out, but it, it turns out if you're, you're bleeding out red stuff, you should replace it with red stuff. Uh, historically, we used to use saline. 
saline will give you volume, but it, it doesn't carry any oxygen. There's no clotting factors, so on and so forth. And so uh, other areas of the country had looked at using component therapy. Um, and San Antonio in particular uh, spearheaded running whole blood. And we took notice of that. And Dr. Roach took notice of that and said, that makes sense. Why would we only put part of it back when we could put it all back? You know, right. you know, you know clotting factors, plasma, uh, red blood cells, et cetera, along with six to 7,000 other different components that we haven't even studied yet, but the human body makes. So we must make it for a reason. So there's value in putting this back in. And it's been dramatic. Uh, so the patients that would be receiving this uh, this uh, therapy or having whole blood products administered are patients that you know don't have a very uh, good outcome traditionally. They're, they're traumatic injury Survival patients. Survivability you know, rates are pretty low. Very low. Uh, I, depending on where you would look, I'd say anywhere between 5 and 10%. Wow. And what, the numbers we're seeing on the uh, 115 people we've given whole blood products to so far in the last two years, and I'll explain why t- two years in, in a second. Um, we're looking at a 73% 24-hour survival rate, and we're working on getting the rest wow. of that data back from the hospitals. But anecdotally, I can tell you the vast majority of those people survived. That's so impressive. These, these are people that normally don't make it off scene. What type of injuries so, are we talking about? Uh, crush injuries, eviscera- eviscerations, uh, uh, gunshot wounds, stabbings, uh, just traumatic injuries that would cause uh, someone to be hemodynamically uh, unstable. So, And in your experiment, you've been here for quite some time. You've been in, in a profession for years now, um, decades. And be, prior to that, if you were out humping a call yourself out in the field, Without whole blood, would it, you say it was a 73% survivability rate at this point based on supplying that whole blood for the 115 people? Yes, sir. So without that, would it be safe to say we probably lost 73% of the yeah, portion? Yeah, I would, I'd say you're, you're pretty close to that number, yes. God, that, D- that's diesel huge. only does so much. That's huge. And so we launched that initiative. Uh, background on that. How many other agencies are doing this in the country? I, I think less than 30 at this point. Less than 30 so, across we, the entire we were, country. And we were the first down here. And what, what, what's really interesting about that is um, when we initi- when when this when the sheriff's office initiated this, all our trauma facilities in the county, we have three of them, we're still using component therapy in the trauma rooms. Um, we actually led the way on changing emergency medicine, not just in the field and pre-hospital, but also in the hospital. By, by showing them the value in it. There was a lot of skepticism and whether or not it was necessarily appropriate. There were questions about blood supply availability, et cetera. And we kind of helped answer all those questions by proof, you know, proof of concept, by showing that it worked. And That's right. By, by did, you, know, you know, emphatically and dynamically proving that this was, you know, valuable. Now, there's a good chance that someone's listening and saying, man, that's really cool, but I don't want someone else's blood in me. Where are we procuring and getting the blood? Can you explain that to kind of give the public a little bit more ease if there's that 1% out there concerned about that? Yes, sir. So uh, One Blood is uh, the main supplier from basically the I-4 quarter down um, for blood. Goes through all their federal, you know, and professional standards and mm-hmm. testing and so on and so forth. Uh, nothing's coming to us. Just you know, uh, the, the concept of the what the uh, the living blood bank out in the uh, yeah. out in the military. We're not doing that. We're not just pulling blood off of me and putting it into you. It's going through you know testing and very you know various other steps in order to ensure that it's healthy blood. And on a daily basis, uh, Chief, you may not even know this one, but I was just curious when you brought that up. Um, how much volume of blood is being carried and transported? on a flight? So we usually have a unit of whole blood and a unit of plasma. And the plasma is a, uh, plasma has been very successful. It's been helpful. The reason we carry plasma as well is it has a slightly longer shelf life. It's 28 days compared to the 21 that we currently have. And because our blood comes from Orlando, if we use it all, there's going to be a gap between when we have it and when we can actually give it again until it gets delivered. So the plasma has been a pretty good, uh, a pretty good holdover 
it's, uh, it's been very beneficial as well. And when you launched the program with all your personnel, was there any new or specialized training certification standards you had to put oh, everyone through? Oh, yes, sir. So uh, we had to make sure that uh, we were meeting the blood bank standards when it came to storage. We made a pretty hefty investment in, uh, in basically scientific laboratory-grade freezers and refrigerators in order to store, store all our materials. Um, there's triple checks on our temperature logs. Um, we had to make sure that our guys really understood the appropriate way to administer blood and actually uh, identify the patients that are going that we were going to give them uh, give the actual product to. So the interesting thing is we actually started this early late quarter one in 2019, but we were operating off of a very very stringent uh, protocol mm-hmm. that because of our transport times being relatively short compared to other areas in the country, we we're actually hindering our ability. It was actually hindering our ability to actually help people. So we started looking at this uh, and it took a little while because COVID slowed us down and whatnot. You know, sure. obviously I took priority, unfortunately, mm-hmm. but as soon as we could actually sit down, Dr. Roach and I and uh, Lieutenant Kravanek and uh, the other members that were contributing to this said, where can we find other opportunities to help people? We obviously know these people need this because well, the, the folks that are giving the uh, blood products in the field are highly experienced. It's, these aren't guys that have, you know, just, got just out of academy or anything right. like that. These guys have a ton of it's experience. They've mm-hmm. seen, they've seen, they've seen sick people before. They've seen injured people before. And, and just, as you have, you know, you, right. you know, if somebody needs help, right? So anecdotally, we could say we knew it, but because of the way our protocol was written, we were, we were held back. We didn't feel comfortable. We did, we couldn't do it. So we figured out really easy, uh, at, at, uh, going off of, uh, ETCO2, and it was a better sign for us. Explain so that to the honor. community because somebody's going to be like, what was that, the RP3 <laughs> Just explain it to them. Basically, we were just going off blood gases okay. you know, through, through respirations. We were just going off our respirations, and it gave us the indication that every, everything we needed along with blood pressures and uh, tachycardia or, you know, somebody with you know, heart, your heart starts beating faster. And uh, with low blood pressure, high rates, and uh, those gases off the respirations, we could say definitively, this is a this is a blood patient or a blood candidate. I'm glad you mentioned the, the thing about the veterans being up there. Um, talk a little bit about how many personnel are actually on your flight medic in the air, so to speak. How many people are on a helicopter? Okay, wait. Talk about the roles. Yes, sir. So we have uh, the uh, the pilot in charge. You know, the pilot's actually piloting the, the aircraft. You have an officer, it's going to be a lieutenant or a captain. They're also a paramedic along with a uh, firefighter paramedic or driver engineer paramedic. Um, so you have a air medical crew of two and you have the pilot. Um, so it's a two-person uh, two person team in the back of the helicopter delivering all the care they, they deliver. And, and it, when it comes to deploying and using whole blood, this is just like any other field operation. You got your experts in the air. They're going to make a judgment call based on the type of injury they're dealing with. There's that. And we're also trying to do our best to disseminate uh, throughout the county. Hey, this is available. And air rescue is a regional resource. It's, it's, got, our, it's got our shield on, on the side of it. And we're responsible for maintaining it and ensuring that it operates safely and they're trained properly, et cetera. But it's everybody's resource. So yeah, we want everyone to use it. I'll tell you one of the cool things I love when uh, Colonel Robson was on here and he was talking about aviation collectively between law enforcement and fire rescue is that just kind of reminder to the community, we're the only Air Force here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, you, we get the mistakes. You know, we love our brothers in Fort Lauderdale and Coral Springs and Sunrise. People come up to me, yeah, we saw the, you know, Coral Springs helicopter. I'm like, they don't have helicopters. <laughs> uh, Sunrise, you know, Police helicopter is over. That's not theirs. It's only one Air Force. It's the Broad Sheriff's Office. And I love the fact how we divided the missions up. Uh, I, based on the stats and stuff that you said, but I want you to elaborate on this. Uh, when we split the missions and no longer had to make a difficult decision between we have a shooting suspect that we're tracking in the air. 
Uh, and then now there's a rollover on I-95. In the past, before we split the missions and allowed the, you to have the autonomy for the medical flight program and law enforcement, we had to make some tough calls. And oh, absolutely. how has that changed the game for this community? Uh, just having the constant availability of air rescue, uh, just knowing that they're always going to be available. And, you know, because not, not to say that the aviation mission from DLE or for law enforcement wasn't equally valid, mm -hmm. but, you know, putting putting the officer, you know, that was flying the, the aircraft prior uh, when we were a joint team, and then the officer, you know, in charge of the fire rescue uh, mission at loggerheads and having to make that tough decision uh, was unfair to them and unfair to the population yeah. that we're serving, right? So by just always having that availability and also the fact that we can work in tandem. We, we've done searches together. That's we right. still train together. We, we, you know, we still do a lot of different things as a team together. It's just when it comes down to it, you know, uh, you know, the green helicopter gets to do its job, and the red and black helicopter gets to do its job now <laughs> without it. having to with, without having to make the you know that tough decision that fallback. Um, I mean, we're on pace for 800 callouts this year for the unit. Wow! So it's uh, we're going in the right direction. Before it was a little split. You know, you go through areas where, of course, you know, you know, helicopters are finicky things at times. They right. require a lot of maintenance. Um, no matter how proactive, proactive you are, you never know if uh, you'll have to down the bird. So, uh, mechanically, we've been doing really great uh, the last uh, year or two here. Um, and the numbers continue to climb as people really start to get more comfortable with using the asset and knowing that it's available. So that's actually helped us with our uh, external and internal partners. Um, you know, you're more apt to call if you think we're going to show up. Before, if you weren't sure if, if we were already committed to another mission, which was more likely when it was a split mission, right? Right. Um, it, you know, it slowly but surely grows. You know, when it's as big as this county is and as many right. firefighters and police officers and, and sheriff's deputies there are in this county, it takes a little while for everyone to kind of catch on and realize that yeah. this is available. It's not going to be a one snap. We know how quickly everyone reads their memos and emails, right? So right. <laughs> <laughs> Now, you know, he's one of the things that I'm sure people are curious about is if this whole blood program is so significant and its ability to enhance survivability by 73% right now from what we're dealing with, right? 115 plus uh, opportunities, as I call them, that we've deployed on. Is this something we can put on the ground? We have. Now, okay. um, the caveat to that is we need to expand it, in my opinion, but we have. Uh, so we have an e EMS supervisor position uh, out of Station 17 known as EMS 17. And the concept behind that position was initially that they were going to be an EMS supervisor, help with remediation and training, help run high acuity calls. Uh, and then we initiated the blood program, and they became a great vector for delivery. As soon as we realized this was really, truly working on the helicopter, we, we're, what other opportunities do we have that we can take advantage of right now to capitalize on this, to help right. people? And they've given blood almost as much as the helicopter crew has. It's been really wow. effective. So the, the difficulty for them is, is they're one unit and 400 square miles. And they're a regional unit as well, just like their rescue. So they're available for call out to anybody. Would, it's just a matter of can they cover the ground in time. So would this be something that would have a significant cost if all of our municipal partners and that you know that we're contracted to provide fire rescue services, EMS services too, to start including? Or how would we handle that? That's more of a sheriff. You're going to have to go to the county and start knocking on some doors in a budget process because it seems one like one of these things where. You have your proof of concept in the area. You have your proof of concept uh, in just a small fraction of the personnel under your command. But if we're about saving lives, we probably should be trying to push this out across you know every single component. Unless I'm wrong. No, I agree. I think I think there's a a, a realistic way to do this because I mean I, I mean it'd be great if you know it was in every station. That'd be wonderful. It's completely unrealistic. Yeah. So the most appropriate way for the county to handle it, in my opinion, maintain it on the helicopter because in theory you can reach anywhere. 
That's right. Uh, so from there, we look at call volume, heat mapping across the entire county and identify the most appropriate areas uh, central to those different hotspots. And then we can make it work. Um, so if we kept somebody, just say if we only stayed in our system, just in just in BSO, if we put one north, say, you know, North County, say BS, uh, Deerfield-ish, mm-hmm. somewhere in Deerfield, they would be able to access anywhere in Deerfield and be able to help any of the adjacent cities and right. municipalities. Um, say Weston or somewhere in that general area for us, you've now can help serve that area better. And then, you know, stay in Dania, you can serve the South end of the County. Um, there's a concept we've employed a couple of times now. I think it's about five. We call it an intercept. Essentially, if the Lieutenant or the officer in charge of the scene has the wherewithal to realize that their patient is a potential blood candidate, EMS 17, what's your location? I'm here. You're there. Can we meet, meet in the, the middle, middle somewhere? Yeah. And it's worked, yeah, a hand, gotcha. worked a handful of times very, very well. Is there any other non BSO uh, fire rescue departments doing this right now? Uh, down here? Yeah. In terms uh, of Sprout County, like one of our uh, uh, no, sir. Opera Sunrise out there again or something. But uh, No, sir. I know Sunrise is uh, looking at it, and I can tell you uh, I work very closely with uh, my counterpart in Palm Beach, mm-hmm. and in the last six months they instituted their program. But beyond that, it's just us. Sounds like you got a memo coming my way. <laughs> um, be careful what you ask, right? So, <laughs> yes, sir. No, look, get it done, man. This is huge. So, look, we're moving forward in a lot of different progressive manners uh, in fire rescue we just came off of another exciting program with all the new SCBAs and some of the different new gear and stuff that's coming in with the handheld thermals. But this aviation uh, flight program that we have running is, is huge. And how many helicopters are currently assigned to you? Currently I have two helicopters. Uh, like I said, EC-135s, one's a 99 and one's a 2012. It's time for an upgrade? Yes, sir. All right, so talk a little bit about some of the things that we're working on right now for that initiative, uh, the H-145s and everything else we're doing. So if we go to the 145, it's going to allow us to better serve the public in a new number of different ways. Currently, we are a de facto EMS helicopter. Uh, and we can we can help with grid search and things like that, and that's about the only fire function we can actually pr- uh, provide. Mm-hmm. There have been plenty of times over the last 10 years that I can think of that we've had to have our neighbors to the south come help us out when it came to hoisting operations. Um, so with the EC-145, we're not getting to such a big helicopter that we can't operate in the same fashion we do. One of the unique things about our program is compared to some of the other ones around us because of the size of their helicopters, they have to use pre-designated landing zones and that's all they can really use. Okay. And not to take away from them, they're great programs, they do really good things, they just operate differently than us. Um, we have a lot more flexibility. We can take intersections, we can land in fields, we, ha- we don't need you know, more than like 150 by 150 tops. And, and my guys can actually do less than that. Um, so by going to the 145, we're not going to increase the footprint that much, but we're going to be able to more, much more comfortably carry two to three patients instead of one to maybe two that we can do now. Okay. And on top of that, we'll be able to help perform other fire functions should we choose to pursue that, meaning hoisting, baby bucket, be able to drop water for uh, you know forestry if we need to help out on the uh, on 75, things like that. So there's a lot of opportunity here. Uh, greater range, we'll be able to go further. We were requested to go to Gainesville area with the patient. We were unable to make that type of range. That might be within reason in a 145. Okay. You know, there's just different ways we can be able to serve if we have that larger, faster, newer resource. Well, that's why you're in charge of building it. So it's my job to get you the money. Um, we hit a couple of things here, but heck, let's just highlight a couple other items. So we're rolling in. We're halfway through 2023. Um, I imagine you're starting to look at what things you'd like to get done or things we're going to focus on between 2024 uh, and the closeout year. Any new projects you want to discuss really quickly? 
Yeah, cool. Um, so uh, on the helicopter right now, we are demoing a uh, new vent from Hamilton. Uh, it's got a, a unique feature in it. It's called a CPR mode. Um, essentially, it's a very smart machine. Um, it, it can sense back pressure, so on and so forth. It very well could change the game when it comes to cardi uh, cardiac arrest in the long run. So okay. we're demoing on the helicopter. Uh, the, the crews have been really pleased with it so far. Incredibly simple and intuitive to use um, and been very effective. So that's one of the ones we're looking at. And potentially, if it uh, continues to be successful, uh, there's a chance we might try to roll it out to the rest of the field. It's a heavy lift. It's not cheap. But uh, the value uh, that it seems like it might have and seems to be heading towards anecdotally anyway is... Um, it's probably worth the investment. How long do you think you'll uh, do the, continue the pilot with it? Um, we're talking to them now about potentially doing a four-truck pilot in the field for 90 to 120 days sometime okay. in the fall. That's a good sample size. You should be able to get a lot of reps with it, and hopefully it works. Um, anything else you got going on? I know we talked earlier about the study that's coming up that you're going to be working with. So uh, I've been in talks with uh, a gentleman from John Hopkins University. He approached me after I gave a uh, talk uh, at, the, uh, at a FDIC in Indianapolis. Um, which is a, a large fire convention, um, came up to me, was very interested in what we were doing with uh, our whole blood program, wanted to take a look at it and help us sort through the data in order to uh, uh, you know, publish a paper on it and really show everybody the value in what we're actually doing down here. So it's a unique opportunity to work with such a prestigious organization. Uh, you know, Dr. Roach is, was a, uh, very excited about the uh, prospects of it, and we're uh, in preliminary, preliminary uh, talks as we speak. Now, I'm sure there's probably about... 100-plus young folks who are interested in fire rescue, uh, what words of advice would you give them if they want to join BSO and, you know, what you've dealt with, absorbed in your career, anything you would offer them? Well, I mean, there's some practical advice right off the bat. Is you got to stay in shape. Uh, the old the old saying was legs and lungs. That's what you need to be a you know a firefighter. I've never mm -hmm. seen anybody bench press bench press a fire hose. Like, you know, so you know I'm I'm not a particularly tall guy. You know that. So you know you need legs and you need lungs. Right. So you know remaining uh, taking care of yourself, being fit. If you can't take care of yourself, you're gonna have a hard time taking care of the people you're supposed to be serving. Amen. Um, never stop learning. Uh, it's, it's cliche. I get that, but it's there's and I mean that twofold. When you get on the job. There's just so many things. And I imagine it's the same thing on the on the Leo side. It just mm -hmm. it just it's like drinking off the fire hose, right? right. At some point, some people just kind of, yeah, that's it. I'm shutting it down. I, I know enough. You, you got to make sure that you can't fall into that trap. Yeah, otherwise, that's right. You know, whether you want to be a firefighter for life or you want to be the fire chief, it, it really doesn't matter. You, you got to keep that open mindedness. You, and along the lines of open mindedness, you're in one of the most diverse areas in the country. You, you got to learn how to deal with people you may or may not want to be able to deal with. You know, people from out of town or mm -hmm. whatever it might be. You, you need to know how to deal with people. Yep. It's a it's it's a skill that's in so many cultures here. So many. So many. You know, you're, you're, you're spot on with that. So and so just in person, your education, take care of yourself. And, you know, if you're, you know, you're young, you haven't really decided yet. Go talk to some firemen. You know, if you if you live within, uh, you know, anything that's under our purview, come see us. Sign up. If you're 18 years old, you can go do a ride along. You know, a lot of the air cities will do that for you as well. Go, go get a taste for and it. And we see have if a you cadet want program, too. Don't There's forget about that. Yes, sir. So that's uh, that's another an amazing opportunity for, you know, high schoolers to learn some basic skills and get their education on, you know, what an EMT is, what medic is, what fire is. You'll find out real quick if you want to do it or not. Yeah. Look, I love that you, you talk about fitness and, and education. Those are two pillars that I live by. And um, I've seen the, the impact of being physically fit and capable when I spent some time with you guys for about two weeks. Um, have never gone through fire academy, all the other stuff, but being able to suit up the fitness component gave me the tolerance to do the things that I had no skills in, no experience in alone. 
Um, I couldn't imagine going through any of that if I wasn't in shape. And then the second side of, that you talked about, the willingness to learn. You know, I wake up and I feel like every day is a lesson to learn something. If you go to bed and you learn nothing, that's a problem for me. Um, every little experience you have is, is, is an opportunity to learn something. So glad you came on today. Tons of stuff. Any last notes you want to hit the community with? Anything else we, we would talk about with EMS or anything? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, we use mechanical CPR devices. It's pretty common in the field nowadays. The brain we use is Zoll. We currently use the Autopulse. Um, I got my hands uh, on the actual pr uh, production model of the next generation uh, Autopulse. It's called the Autopulse NXT. Um, looking like we're going to be transitioning towards that over the next year or so. That'll be a you know a goal for next year. Uh, so yeah, if we hash out the details and whatnot. Why is that beneficial? Explain to the community what that does or what that allows for your personnel in the field. So it's it's a force multiplier essentially, uh, and so there, there's that. It frees up a set of hands, it makes it so a paramedic can do other things for you. But it's also there's a, a, a very practical reason for mechanical CPR that I don't think people really you know recognize until you point it out. Which is when you're doing 45, 50, 60 miles down now or down the road and stopping and swerving and moving lanes because not everyone moves out of the way and then having to you know approach turns, it's very hard to stand up and do CPR. Uh, effectively anyway. You yeah. Know, you can pay in lip service and keep a hand on someone's chest, but it doesn't matter how strong you are, how fit you are. Uh, all lateral that movement back there <laughs> yeah. changes the depth of your compressions, yep. all that stuff. Yep. You're, not, you're not as consistent. Yeah. Lateral G-forces affect everybody. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Well, look, I, I wish you the best of luck in the project. You know, I'll support it. If it makes sense, I'm with you. Thank you, sir. Um, you've been a rock star. You've, you've handled EMS, and I'm, I'm glad you went through some of the figures and numbers because it is a huge um, mission and a huge obligation and responsibility on your shoulders, but you've excelled at it. So well, proud, I appreciate it. Pr proud of you as you share, proud also as your friend, man. You've done great. I've watched you for years. I appreciate it. Uh, for many of you who are coming on late, shame on you. You should have got on here in the beginning, but the beauty about on the podcast, you can always start from the beginning and roll us back. Uh, today's special guest was one of our own. It is Fire Rescue Division Chief Keith Clark, who is the lead on our EMS program. We talked about whole blood, the importance of that mission in terms of aviation, the expansion in which he's uh, pursuing, and how we are literally out here changing the game, saving lives, and part of a very small, small group of uh, public safety professionals who are actually deploying and implementing this program. So we're not just happy to be in the lead of it, but we're going to keep leading. So. Chief, thanks for joining me on the show today, buddy. My pleasure. For everyone else, thank you for joining me on Shop Talk with the Sheriff. Remember to follow me on Instagram at BSO Sheriff Tony. It's not a stunt double. Yeah, baby, it's me. Also, subscribe to the podcast so you get early alerts for every new episode. In the meantime, stay safe, be humble, and love somebody a little bit more than you love yourself. <laughs>